Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mariana Rivas Tomé. I'm a lecturer at the School of Politics, Philosophy, Language and Communication Studies at the University of East Anglia. And I'm delighted to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk today to Kupra Kubishai. Kupra is an award-winning writer and a visiting fellow and Mercator Senior Fellow at the Center for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at Cambridge University. Kupra has co-founded several campaigns and initiatives, some more recent of which include a feminist co-creation space in Hamburg and a research and advocacy organization for desirable futures. Kupra is also the author of a fantastic new book, Speaking and Being, How Language Binds and Frees Us, which we'll be talking about today. Originally written in German, the book examines how language shapes our politics, our perceptions and our societies. It's a fascinating read that weaves together so much research and expertise with Kubra's own personal experiences and insights. So I'm looking forward to talking about some of it today. If those of you watching along would like to join the conversation about the event on Twitter, you're more than welcome to do so using the hashtag RSA language or here in your YouTube chat. Kubra, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Marianne. Well, there's so much in your book that we could just uh, uh, talk about. Uh, but I, I think I'll start with something that is very close to my heart. And I think it's, it's very relevant for the world in general as well today. Uh, it is about being multicultural. Um, so being functional in more than two languages. Uh, bilingual is also uh, a very important aspect of our world because more than half of the population is bilingual. We tend to forget uh, this fact. And in the European Union, I think it's about uh, close to 60% of the population being able to function in, in, in two languages. So this is quite a significant aspect of our, our world. And, and you write the book from the perspective of someone who speaks several languages, or we could even say um, inhabit several languages. Uh, you use this metaphor of language as a building uh, in different ways. For example, you speak of the, the architecture of the language that is supposed to capture our reality. Um, you also say we only sense the walls and limits of language when it no longer works, when it restricts us, uh, when it takes our breath away. Um, people who feel at home in two or more languages often report that they have a different personality in each of them. So all these metaphors about buildings and, and things to do with buildings and walls. Um, you even speak about augmenting the language, uh, the way in which uh, languages can be enriched by each other. Um, and one of my favorites is this uh, idea of thinking of language as a place connected to um, the idea of an immense museum that explains the world out there to us. So you have learned different languages across different stages of your life. Uh, would you be able to share with us uh, what this allowed you to, to see about how languages shapes our perceptions and experiences? You make a brilliant point in the book about um, the humility uh, we, we oft, often uncover through realizing that many things we, we think of as objective or universal are in fact shaped by our language. So how has being multilingual uh, allowed you allowed room for, for this uh, multiplicity of ways of seeing in, in your case? Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction, Marianne. 
Um, growing up with different languages, to me at first meant that each language was associated with certain feelings and certain ideas and I have different emotions felt at home in different languages. So at first when I, when I grew up with Turkish at home and Arabic was introduced to me through my parents because um, they are practicing Muslims and German was later on introduced in my life through school and English later on in my life um, also at school but also more through arts and culture and also uh, has been the language I inhabited when I um, traveled abroad and, um, you know, just made the very first um, decisions on my own. And hence, English to me meant freedom. Um, Turkish meant um, melancholy and also being at home because that was the language I was, I was first loved in and the first language I loved my parents back, my siblings back. Um, Arabic was a very melodic language, one that I also associated with um, my religion and my belief and with spirituality. And German, because I was first um, inhabiting that language in school, was also the language where I did mistakes and where I was told that I was wrong and uh, the language that showed me limits and also the language that connected me to everyone around me. Um, so all these very, um, I would say, stark emotions were associated with each language. But um, through time and through also trying to be in all of those languages, I realized that I was constantly running against something and I didn't know what it was. And, um, and also through 10 or more years of being active in the political discourse and the public where I realized that the debates were not getting any more constructive or productive, quite the contrary. It was getting um, less constructive, less productive um, and, and destructive. And that the all these knowledgeable people who have had so much power because they have had an audience they've had all these people listening to them we're not really careful about the effects of what the their words have been having and um at first i was participating in those public political debates very enthusiastically and optimistically um believing that there would be some change and once one topic was over we could now move on to something else and then I realized it's a spectacle. It's not designed to have productive outcomes that bring us together as society, but it's um, a business. It's a spectacle. And people are incentivized to keep this going and not actually um, um, solve the very issues we're debating on. And very tired of that, I decided to um, so at, at this point, I felt like this is what I called it. I called it an intellectual cleaning lady. I felt like I was someone who was um, cleaning up after all these mostly men, uh, uh, white privileged men, but also a lot of other people as well who have just been posing destructive ideas into the public. And then everyone was very engaged in debating those. And um, but there was no constructive outcome of this. So I decided to stop that job for a moment. And then I wanted to understand why it is that we have these kind of debates. And I wanted to 
partake in the discussion of something that would that might allow us to have a great understanding of what is around us and what constitutes our society and our togetherness and how we could actually have more productive debates on um, the many challenges our societies face. So I decided to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and the hardest structure I could discover was the architecture of language. And so this book came about and I wanted to explore language and so I um, explored it, touched it and tried to understand what it is that is around us. And so through that came a great understanding of language. But what happened is when I wrote the book that my relationship to language dramatically changed because as I said earlier, to me, each language was associated with certain feelings and experiences. And in interviews, people would ask me, um, you know, they wanted to have sound bites and wanted me to talk about these, you know, different feelings and, and languages. And I realized it's not true anymore because through this book, um, you know, the, this book, I, I wrote with the intention of answering the question, how can I exist in a language where I was not meant to speak in, but be spoken about? And, um, and I realized through this book, I was actually, I had found the answer without realizing. And it's one of the quotes by James Baldwin actually that made me realize it more clearly. Um, and he, like many other writers, poets, um, novelists, thinkers in the past, has been struggling with the language he was inhabiting um, as it was placed in a society where there was structural oppression um, of, of, his, um, of him and his people. And so as an Afro-American writer in the US, he spent many years in Paris in the 60s um, on, on a self-exposed exile. And he described the um, obstacles he's facing with language and the problems he has with language. And he, so I'm paraphrasing, and he says um, that, yes, it might be the language's fault that it doesn't have the words to describe his experience to carry the heaviness of what he experiences in this world. But he says, it might also be my fault because I've never learned to use language, but just learned to imitate it. And that was a very emancipating process because this distinction he makes is a very thin line. And from the outside, you might not even notice if someone is imitating or actually using something, um, not only language, you can you know, use it in very other um, various examples, but um, it is a, has a dramatic effect on how you inhabit a room. If you, use this room of language, of the, the building of language like it's yours, you dare to move some furniture around, you dare to tear some walls down, you dare to introduce another room into this building, you dare to build a few other um, uh, sheds and uh, maybe like different things you want to add to this language. And, and through this book, I'm, the architecture of language that felt so solid and unmovable to me, all of a sudden became movable, changeable. And I realized that if we dare, if we take the courage to um, use language and not imitate it, 
it can and has the potential to inhabit us all. That is it's fascinating. I mean, you, you capture so many ideas with uh, what you have just, just said. I mean, you, you seem to obviously have a very high sensitivity towards language and you have very well described and you describe very well in your book, all these aspects you have mentioned, just how you become conscious of the power of language, in fact, and how language can be used uh, as a weapon, but it can be a tool with which you can uh, own the, the space of that building where you would not feel invited to, but you can actually learn to speak your own language. So it's, it's a very interesting, or have your own voice, you could say, uh, within that language that in principle is not necessarily welcomed you in, in different ways, perhaps in ways that you may want to explain a bit more, but it, it, is, it is an interesting connection with, uh, yeah, the, the, the resistance as well that you can actually uh, produce within the, with the tools that are not necessarily um, uh, for you to use in principle, but you can actually, um, just transform them into something positive uh, for you to express and for you to be heard. Um, so this language and power and gender actually as well um, topic or theme in your in your book um, comes up uh, as well and I think it's very relevant because of course uh, there's uh, an element or an aspect about who speaks, who is dictated uh, by language or the dictates with language uh, what to do, what not to do, or frames the world in a particular way, uh, producing a perspective that is more valid than others. Um, so you, you explore all this. And of course, there's some element connected to uh, language and, and gender. Um, you have uh, said how it has been de demonstrated that uh, the, the influence of gender sensitive language uh, uh, has on our thinking. Uh, this research on the on the on that topic, and you you mentioned that in your book. So, could you share with us some of what this exploration of language revealed to you about how gender and gender inequality show up in in our everyday uh, experience? Yeah, that's a very fascinating topic because when you speak a language like English and German, you speak languages where you obviously gender all the time. You can't talk about a person without ever using words like he or she. So you constantly are sort of forced to um, gender people and decide what binary category uh, to put uh, people into. And to give a personal example, um, my, my son, um, I talked to him in Turkish first. And for the first few years, Turkish was the um, main language we both have been talking together. And Turkish, like many other languages, like um, Persian, Indonesian, and uh, various other languages, um, does not use gendered pronouns. So they don't use he, she, it. In Turkish, they simply use of. And that has led for him to perceive the world differently. And I only noticed when he started to talk German and he would always, to this day, to be honest, um, misgender people. And when I would correct him, because I obviously wanted him to speak German correctly, he looked at me like, mom, I'm trying to tell you something and I don't think that's relevant. And his reaction actually showed to me how absurd it is that we sort of force through the architecture of a language to um, um, look at people and before noticing anything else, are forced to decide which binary category to put a person into. And that 
um, robs us of the multifacetedness a human being has. It robs us from the many other layers of a human being that we could first notice. And it doesn't mean that we should not gender, but it, also, but it rather shows that the obsession with gendering um, um, or putting people into certain categories is a very limiting uh, tool. I mean, it's it's a it's a tool, but when this tool becomes the first and foremost, most important attribute, um, it can be quite limiting. And um, there are many examples. Um, Lera Boroditsky is a cognitive psychologist who gives another example of. Um, uh, Indonesian where she talks to someone and she talks in Indonesian to a person and tells about a friend of hers and you know they have a very long conversation and the, and she says the 21st question this person has asked about the person she was talking about uh, was um, what gender that person had and she realized for the entire through the entire conversation this person was imagining a person asking questions about this person um, without feeling the urge to attribute a certain gender to, to this person. And that might make me question um, our ability to imagine to, um, and connect to human beings without having that information revealed to us. Um, another very striking example is given by Miranda Fricker, uh, who's a philosopher and, and scholar who says, it talks about the hermeneutical lacuna, the linguistic lacuna. And she describes or uses the example of sexual harassment as a word that wasn't quite widespread in the 60s in the US. And she says, if in the 60s, um, a woman, for example, at a workplace would be subjected to sexual harassment, not only would the perpetrator, um, her boss, for example, um, not be aware of the fact that he had done something wrong. She, um, Miranda Fricker says, was unable to verbalize what had happened to her and um, put measures into practice to prevent this from happening again, to um, um, sort of um, secure herself. And because it either had to be a flirt or something very violent was supposed to happen for people to see that there was something wrong. Um, so it was rather regarded as a compliment and not seen as a, as a problem, as violence. And only through the emergence of this word and only through this word being filled with meaning, because it is not enough for a word to emerge without people actually understanding what this could mean. I mean, uh, say, if we had the word love, you have to experience or witness or hear about through arts, culture, music, through observing your environment to know what this word entails and um, what uh, is all inhabited within the room of love. And so um, does it have to be with um, the word sexual harassment? She says, when this word emerged and when it, when it was filled with meaning, people were able to see what only some saw previously. So the lack of this word uh, is not just a coincidence. It is a reflection of the political and social uh, power relationships within a society. And so finding words for injustice, finding words for violence, finding words for violence through certain perspective um, 
is crucial to visualize what only marginalized people see, to visualize what only some see, to be able to have productive discourses and debates about what happens in our society and to be able to um, solve those problems, to overcome those. And um, so language becomes a crucial element in this. Thank you, that is uh, fantastic. <laughs> Again, uh, a lot of uh, rich ideas uh, that we could try to unpack um, a little bit. Not, not. Uh, we don't have a lot of time for co to, to cover all of them. But uh, you quote in your book, and I think this has to do with making things visible or invisible, or silencing things, or making or giving them a space for for the voice to be heard. Um, you quote Robin Wolkemera, which is an indigenous scholar uh, from North America, who presents us with the possibilities that open up if we live in a language, if we lived in a language that reveals the world to us from the Earth's viewpoint. So that's talking about different viewpoints. That's an interesting one, isn't it? It has a lot of implications um, for us to consider uh, that perspective. Uh, we have uh, Western languages or perhaps cultures have developed this extractivist uh, perhaps position and, and viewpoint uh, where the, the, the earth is just uh, an endless supply of resources that have, had to have to be exploited. But from a perspective of indigenous people and indigenous languages, the relationship is completely differently shaped by the language they use. Um, they have words, for example, to imply respect for plants, as you mentioned in your book, for example. So this, this is um, about naming things, about relationships with your environment, with the people around you. Um, so it is interesting because what we cannot say, we cannot see. Mm. Coming back to what you were saying, you could argue. So um, this has a lot of implications as for how many languages we inhabit as well. Uh, the more languages, it would seem to suggest that the, the more access we have to a, a better understanding and a better view of, 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 of viewpoint that otherwise we are missing out. And this also comes to the idea of identities. I think uh, the way identities can be reduced or, or uh, expanded. Uh, and, and this also links with um, the way that perhaps um, the discourses of, or the rhetoric, you could say, um, that is somehow prevalent in the social media and uh, of course in hate, hate speech uh, comes up as well. Um, they, they can, th these different ways of using language can actually shape a view of the world that is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, and and uh, leaders in the world actually uh, embracing uh, these forms of communication uh, with us shifting the way uh, we see what can be said and what cannot be said in a completely different way from what we were just saying about making visible things that need to be visible. Um, so um, where do we go from here? Is there any way of getting the hate speech genie back inside uh, the bottle as it were? Um, can we uh, perhaps move away from identity politics uh, that tends to reduce us to this simplified version of ourselves? Um, there's so much there. I mean, maybe you can comment on, comment on some of these uh, aspects of, of your work. Yes, um, so many things you touched upon, and maybe to start with the with the language of um, the Potawatomi, uh, an indigenous um, uh, a tribe in the north of the US. Um, and actually, this language was one of the languages that inspired me most while writing this book, because, like you said, it 
allows you to look at the world through a perspective I have had never used before that I have had never inhabited before and this language offers the you to look at the world not only through the eyes of humans but also through the eyes of insects plants mountains stones the earth and this makes it a very um i would say radical example of one other truth and that is the moment we speak and use words we oftentimes without really understanding and unconsciously doing so and in um inhabit a certain set of eyes through which we look at the world through so the previous example of i gave of um words missing the last example with the potawatomi where uh, you inhabit you can inhabit through the grammar of that language the uh, perspective of uh plants insects and mountains and stones um are proofs that language is not just the description of the world um, and words are not just yet another description of the world. Sometimes it can mean that you take in a very limited perspective or a broader perspective. And to link it to our political discourse, oftentimes in our political discourse, it is not about what's factually right or wrong, but it's a fight over the dominion whose eyes are we using to look at the world through. And that is the real battle that is happening behind the scenes. And, and this is, I think, important to understand because that is also one of the elements that we can work on um, to, because I, and I, and I, in the past few years where I've been traveling around the world, um, various um, countries and, and parts of societies, I know I'm not alone with this, I really yearn and I'm thirsty for a public discourse where we ha can have productive debates about the many obstacles we're facing from the climate crisis to sexism, to racism, to classism, to poverty, um, to oppression, to all these um, you know, injustices that structurally prevent us from living the lives we could. Um, and all of these are injustices that we could potentially overcome as human beings if we put the right resources into it. And, and so I was, I was thinking a lot about how that kind of space could look like. And, um, and all of the examples I've, I gave through the last couple of minutes we've had, to me, um, showed one central element, and that is how limited my perspective is, how little I know. And I know, that, you know, this is like uh, 101 philosophy. This is what uh, we've heard so many times and so often. But to me, it was the first time I truly, truly felt um, humility. And to me, it was a feeling that was a very emancipated feeling, because humility did not entail being um, sort of undermining myself, but quite the contrary. It meant to me, or it means to me, self-consciousness. means to know what I know, but also being, uh, um, being consciousness 
of the limitedness of myself, of the vast amount of things that are yet to be discovered. But yet this humility we don't observe oftentimes in the public, I would say rarely if ever. And in the first, if you, if you remember those first days of when the pandemic started, I saw a little bit of that humility in the public. I saw a lot of politicians, um, uh, you know, scientists and uh, people from various fields talk with humility because they were saying things like, we will now use this measure and hopefully it will, it will create the outcomes we're hoping for, but we'd have to see in a week or two if you know what the data says. So the understanding of we don't know if what we do will create the outcomes we're hoping for, the understanding for one's limitedness, the understanding that we're simply trying and that we will do mistakes and that we will have to correct those mistakes and apologize for them. And it, it showed to me that it is indeed possible to have a public space where humility is an element, uh, and one that is not um, being used to punish people because we live in a world uh, and that I have to be on it very honest with. Um, I find it difficult to um, advocate for humility since we, you know, if, if, if anyone takes, um, you know, a class on emancipation in the business world, women oftentimes are taught to stand like this and interrupt people and, you know, have all these power poses and, uh, and acts of dominion to um, that basically are the exact opposite of a humility. And we live in a world where you can bullshit your way up to the most powerful positions. We live in a world where um, most powerful positions are inhabited by people who uh, um, are in impersonation of lack of humility. So in that kind of situation, to advocate for humility, I find not very easy. But I believe that if we had public spaces that um, where we would have discourses and debates with humility, and that is understanding how limited we are, that we're offering a perspective, that we're offering information to then collectively contextualize those, we might be able to have um, actually productive discussions. To give an example from Indian philosophy is, you know, imagine this huge dark room with this big elephant in it, and then we invite different people into this room and everyone touches the elephant. And then you ask, what is an elephant? And some will say elephants are uh, soft lung animals. Others will say thin, hairy animals. And some others will say uh, big, heavy, leathery animals. And all of them are correct. Um, if one of these people universalizes their limited perspective, claims to have absolute knowledge, claims to have um, the objective perspective, um, the neutral perspective, not only are all the other perspectives then oppressed, but also we as um, a collective miss the opportunity to see what there is. And I think the public could um, have that function of being the space where we contextualize perspectives, bring them together. Even perspectives that seem to be completely contradictory can be brought together. To give an example from uh, say police violence, to some the institution of the police means peace and security and order. 
and to others it means violence, racism, death. These completely contradictory perspectives are simultaneously true. And what happened was that oftentimes our public would then, uh, our po political discourse would be about whether or not that exists or not, rather than asking questions like, if the institution of police does not provide it, provide peace and security and order for all, one, is it able to do so? Secondly, are there alternatives to it? Are there alternative ways to provide that for all? And we're not even having those debates because we're stuck at the point of proving that there is another perspective that is legitimate. And the very same type of debates uh, that are stuck in proving that there is something wrong, we experience in the climate debate, um, the debate on, on sexism and various other topics. So, um, it, it, it might sound like a utopian idea, um, but the pandemic, the, the first days of the pandemic have shown that uh, it is possible. Um, and I know it didn't go the way we had hoped for, um, but I do believe that we have to try because we're better than this. We have to be better than this because um, we will go extinct if we don't change the way we interact with each other. If we don't create spaces in the public where constructive, productive debates are possible. That's right. I mean, again, uh, totally in agreement with what you have said, especially this idea that we have somehow compromised the dialogue or the dialogic uh, positions for this uh, obsession with getting uh, or being right. And um, we miss the opportunities that language also provides from looking at things from different perspectives. And the value of languages definitely could bring that into, into the, the discussion and to the, the, the public realm. The more people learn languages, the more opportunities we have to reflect upon what they are actually able to um, bring to us that we didn't know existed. Uh, that's why closing departments of modern languages as it's happening as we speak in, in the United Kingdom, for example, is such a loss, mm -hmm. uh, you could say. Um, so this public debate is somehow intoxicated by positions that are very unhelpful. That it's not all lost, you could argue, of course, there's hope as long as we keep on um, some, some of us keep on uh, thinking that uh, it's worth trying one more time to, 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 to sort of put different perspectives on the table. Um, and, and this links in my mind with something I read in your book that uh, had to do with you uh, trying to be part of this dialogue uh, in society. You have mentioned before you were part of the conversations sometimes that were frustrating. Um, but you said at some point that um, you, you were talking about uh, uh, the hijab, I, I think, and uh, you were being uh, told how uh, you have explained these things, and finally, this this have uh, uh, somehow made people understand better that uh, hijab wearing women have uh, uh, are not necessarily oppressed. Uh, but you you said that it didn't really uh, come from the fact of, of the, this realization was not based on what you have said, but rather on the very fact that you had spoken, uh, and and this idea of the transformational power of 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 being able to occupy a space and put your voice there uh, to be heard is still I think uh, an aspiration that is bringing up the possibilities of the future that we're just speaking about. Um, another thing you say that is really interesting is that when we are objects, we aren't speaking. When the topic is prescribed, we aren't, we aren't speaking. And when we are told to speak for a group, we aren't speaking. Um, so 
yes, we, we have to find our place in, in the dialogic nature of, of uh, uh, com communication, you could say. Uh, but this is also interesting in contrast with something you say uh, connected to religion. And I think I want to bring uh, ask this uh, topic just to, to wrap up and, and probably uh, finalize uh, our conversation at this point, unfortunately. Uh, you say, uh, in context with the, 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 the conversation we have had about voice and speaking, speaking up as well, uh, you say something that made me reflect and, and pause and reflect. And you say, so I ask myself how anyone can remain spiritual if they constantly have to rationalize, explain and defend, defend their spirituality, which seems to be uh, making a case for uh, being able to also stay silent at times and to uh, uh, be able to came back uh, a space where you can actually choose not to speak uh, at times, especially with, with the topic of religion. Uh, you speak about uh, uh, religion in, 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 your, in your book, um, how you came to your Muslim faith through the Turkish language, and, and then uh, you, found, uh, you, you have to find ways to express your faith in German. Do you have anything to share about what religion and faith uh, can reveal to us about the limits of what is expressible in language and what lies uh, beyond it. So it might sound like a like a contrast, but it links together since what I was trying to say with that is that the moment we try to explain our very existence, we don't exist in that moment because we are explaining that we are instead of being simply and acting within that in in that being that um, of who we are. And if we are constantly busy and making people understand who we are, this is then who we are. People who explain to others who they are instead of simply being. And um, there's so much complexity, there's so much ambiguity each and every human being has. And the moment we try and make ourselves be understood, we rob ourselves of our individuality, we rob ourselves of our complexity and ambiguity and flatten our being into um, a sentence from a sentence where we hope that this other person might understand us. And I find this very humiliating. And I, it, it is like writing a poem and then for the rest of your life explaining to people what this poem means. But this poem probably means so many things. Um, or another example I gave in the book was, it's like explaining to someone who doesn't understand the concept of love, why you are with your partner. And then you might say, um, give all these various explanations and this person just won't understand. And then you end up after many years um, saying, in the hope that this person now finally will understand why you are together with your partner, say, oh, because my partner gives me financial stability. And that was never the reason you were with this person, but you give, give this reason in hope that this person will finally grant you peace and being. And, and I think um, it, is, it, is like it is like explaining a poem instead of experiencing a poem. And, and I feel this was also one of the um, problems that 
arise through intensive discussions on racism, on gender, where we spend a lot of time on um, describing who we are, not because we want to be seen as a group, but because we have to, um, you know, the classical uh, concept of strategic essentialism, we have to essentialize ourselves to be to visualize the injustices that people have. But if we stop there, this becomes a prison. And, and that was also another aspect where I felt speaking freely to me means that I don't have to explain my existence to be understood, but they, that I can be an explorer of this world, that I, like everyone else, um, um, or like some people at least, um, am allowed to understand and explore this world with curiosity. To give another example to visualize this is uh, the world, the word old white men. So um, I was at a conference where I um, gave the example of the Museum of Language and that I, um, I think, um, uh, so I won't go into that. That's a very long concept because I'm, I'm uh, conscious of time. But the Museum of Language, so I gave that example and then um, I have, at this conference, something happened. The, the person I was on a panel with, um, she was a law professor and she talked about the fact that um, the group that profits most from the Anti-Discrimination Act in Germany are usually old white men because they um, get compensated for ageism and relatively high amounts of money. And in the audience, people were quite appalled by this and you know, a very lively discussion was happening and then someone raised his arm, an old white man. And he said he felt uncomfortable about the way people were talking about old white men in this room. And then the debate became very, um, uh, even livelier, even uh, heat, more heated. And then, then I intervened because something interesting had happened in that moment. Um, this person, for the first time in his life, maybe, um, experienced what it means to stand in front of someone and not be seen, to speak to someone and not be heard, because uh, um, a wall is being pulled between you and this person, because all of a sudden you are not being seen as an individual with a complex past, present and future, but you are primarily being seen as the representative of a group, of an abstract group. And all of a sudden, instead of being who you are, you have to comment on what someone else has done, complete strangers who are uh, being attributed to the same group as you are being attributed to. All of a sudden, instead of just, you know, following your interests or do whatever you would have done earlier, you're busy um, proving that you don't adhere to the negative stereotypes um, that are associated with your group, that you are not racist, not sexist, etc., etc. So instead of being, you're busy explaining what you're not. And for the first time in that room, in that moment, this person was experiencing how suffocating it can be if someone else's perspective on you is seen as the universal, 
the absolute truth about you and you are busy trying to prove that you're not what they project onto you instead of simply be the individual you are. For the first time, maybe in that room, in that moment, this person experienced what it, what it feels like to be robbed away of your individuality, complexity, ambiguity, and the beauty of being. And, um, and when I said that, the, the atmosphere in the room changed because we understood what had happened. And then I said, um, what this person has only been experiencing in this room in that moment, all the other people I've been on the panel with have been experiencing this their whole lives. So to me, I think what, what one could boil it down to is understand that, and that links it to the very beginning of our conversation, that language is a tool that we, can, that, that we should use, that we may use, but it doesn't cover the beauty of the world. It is a very limited, beautiful tool, but it do, does not encapsulate the complexity, the vast beauty of the world. And so many things are still yet to be discovered. So many, most things are yet to be discovered and understood and explored. And if we fall into the illusion, into the trap of um, thinking that our language does cover all that there is to discover, uh, it will be very uh, saddening life and one that will perpetuate injustices. So understanding our limitedness, understanding um, how little we know uh, is something I think we could strive forward to. That is a wonderful message, Kura, and I'm afraid this is all we have uh, time uh, for. It has been wonderful uh, talking to you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and for sharing all these insights. Uh, I think, uh, yes, one big message here perhaps is that we need to uh, become more aware of language and all its uh, implications and ramifications and all things language. Um, I think today having brought center stage and made visible as well, because language itself can be invisible. So um, if we have achieved that today, and thanks to you and your book, I think we, we have uh, then moved forward a little bit in the right direction. Um, thank you. Uh, to those of you watching, I hope that your uh, conversation today has uh, given you a window into some of the thinking in Kubra's book, uh, Speaking and Being. I do strongly encourage you to get hold of a copy um, as it, it really is a brilliant read, uh, read that um, will reveal a lot about how language shapes how we move through the world. Um, and I think we need to know more about language as I just said. So you can find it also of how and where to get a copy of the book here in the chat and on the RSA website. Um, all that remains uh, is to say thank you again to Kubra Gumiche and thank you all for, for watching. Thank you, Marianne, for the conversation. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.